I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Moving on, we're going to talk about a a controversial subject, and that is um, the, the the Mexican gray wolf. And, I, and I'll explain why it's kind of it's, it's controversial from from the ground up uh, for a bunch of different reasons, which we'll get into. But first, I want to go around and have our guests introduce themselves. We got someone from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, Steve, I'm John Oakleaf with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I'm the field programs coordinator, so out in the field working with various folks and um, been on the project since 2002. The Uh, project being? The Mexican Wolf Project. And then Forest Service. USDA Forest Service, Vicente Ordonez. I am the Forest Service liaison to the Mexican Wolf Project. They have me embedded with the biologist on the wolf program to try to help uh, with the communication process. It's a complex, controversial, a lot of moving parts going on with this project. So they have me in place to try to help smooth those parts and keep them working smooth with communications with our forest users and uh, try to reduce some of that conflict that's going on. And it matters to you guys because a lot of this is occurring on land administered by the Forest Service. Yeah, almost exclusively on Forest Service land. Uh, The Forest Service is a land management agency. We manage the habitat, and Fish and Wildlife Service uh, does on-the-ground work on dealing with the wolves. Yeah. And then, again, uh, becoming a frequent guest, Dr. Carl Malcolm. That's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Carl Malcolm, Southwestern Regional Wildlife Ecologist with the USDA Forest Service. How long have you been Dr. Carl Malcolm for? I finished my PhD. I defended my thesis in uh, late 2011. So I'll be coming up on six years. So you're like an old-timey doctor. Man, I don't know about that. Um, all right, here's the first question. So everybody knows gray wolves, right? Gray wolves are gray wolves. Are gray wolves. They had an enormous range at the time of European contact. Is it like, is it legit? Because you know in taxonomy, you got lumpers and splitters, right? Okay. And as my brother said, you got lumpers and splitters, and they know who they are. Um, how legit is it? To say that, that 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 it's a subspecies when there was no when there was no break in the populations, they just like bled into each other. Yeah. So what they what they think going back in time is there was, uh, in terms of the gray wolf, it came over from o- old world Europe across the across the Bering Sea, and there was several invasions. So there was three invasions of gray wolves that came over. The first wave basically was the Mexican wolf. Okay. So it comes over, establishes on North America. This, everywhere. Yeah, basically At everywhere. the time. The second wave then is Canis lupus nubilis. So that's basically Great Plains wolves, the wolves that are up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, those areas. And then the last wave is Canis lupus occidentalis, which is up in um, Alaska, Canada now, kind of coming down from that area right up to the United States border. So it's pretty widely recognized that those three are subspecies of the gray wolf. And, and you say, like, so, so distinct, these are distinct waves of distinct species coming down. I mean, they were all subspecies in Europe at the time. They just gotcha. represent different genetics, and then once they're isolated from each other, they start representing different genetics, and you can really determine between them. And if so you, you feel that a dude riding around on a horse in... In 1700, if he was, if he started in, if he started at the 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 Arizona Mexico border mm-hmm. and rode due north, that he would have thought like, man, like as he got up into the northern Rockies, he would have said, man, these wolves seem different than the ones that I was running into when I started my ride. Well, yeah, I mean, Mexican wolves down here are 80 pounds for a big male, okay. for instance. Uh, big female would be 60 pounds, somewhere in there. Uh, when you go north uh, and get up into the ones in Yellowstone and some of those areas that are there now, 140 pounds is a big male with about 20 pounds of meat in its gut. So you'd say 120 pounds even. Yeah. And then females are in the 80, 90 pound range. So even something like that, Northern Rockies wolves, uh, all the other spe- subspecies are uh, have black phases Kay. and white phases. Mexican wolves only gray. Oh, is that right? Yeah, only. So that's a distinguishing feature. So someone, anybody can see the difference, the big differences that occur. Yeah. And so what what's up? Because there's one more. What's up with the red wolf? So the red wolf is a separate species, is what they. So it's Canis rufus. No, oh, so it's not even, it's not a subspecies, it's a whole separate species. Right, yeah. right. And then there's an eastern wolf that's out there that some people are debating whether it's associated with the red wolf or it's associated with gray wolves. And so there's a fair bit of debate about that eastern. Did, the, did the red wolf come out of some kind of uh, hybridization with, with wolves and coyotes? Or? Oh, that's interesting. Science isn't perfect, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of disagreements among scientists. 
And so there's two different hypotheses right now going on, and one's that it's a hybrid between uh, gray wolves and coyotes. Okay. And the second is is that it's a North American, just developed a bigger type of canid. Yeah, got you. And so this is the bigger type of canid represented by the eastern wolves and the red wolves. And then they subsequently bred with some coyotes through time. And so, but in terms of how they evolved, they evolved in North America as a big canis. So if you, again, going back in time, if you, what would have been the pre-contact, like the pre-European contact range of what, of what we now describe as the Mexican gray wolf? So it'd be uh, in Arizona and New Mexico, south into, into um, Mexico. So and at that, so if, if at that same time you were in the Texas Panhandle, what would you have said that wolf was? Uh, you would probably call it, it would be a Mexican wolf as well. Yeah. On, over in Texas, that's primarily Mexican wolves. But there's bleed over, right? Yeah. Subspecies breed with each other still. And so there's gradations that go on through it. It wasn't a sharp, defined line. You'll see maps that have, here's a line. But in reality, it was some big fuzzy area transition zone. Yeah, it's similar to now when we look at, um, if you look at mule deer and blacktail deer in California, we've conveniently decided that I-5, right? Yeah. That a deer can go from being a blacktail to a mule deer just by hopping the highway. Sure. Because you have that, like, I remember the an intercline of some, there's some way to put it, like a steady intercline of grades or something like that. So, so people like the, the clean line, right? So, oh, I like, uh, man, I, I like a good clean line. Yeah, it's a lot better <laughs> than saying, hey, it's gradations all over the place and stuff like that. I mean, if you go back in time, there were 24 subspecies in North America of gray wolf. Okay. And so saying that there's three right now that you'd recognize consistently is, re- that's, that's the lumpers kind of going in there. Yep. And so review for me the three that are here, the three that are in North America now. So it's the can- Northern Great Lakes. Yeah, so you have the Great Lakes, which is uh, Canis lupus. Um, I'm getting goofed up here, but Canis lupus nubilis. So that's the Great Lakes, and it's stretched all the way across the Central Plains. Okay. And all the way over that's into California, yeah. and just big, big broad swath. And then Occidentalis was up north, and it kind of was the last invading wave. And so when you see the common line depicted for Occidentalis, which is the big Alaska kind of wolves it comes down into montana just a little bit and it's kind of this odd shape right so it kind of cuts out a shape of where uh, nubilis was so that's kind of evidence of this evasion happening yeah that they're the last they would have continued to take over range because they're bigger tougher stronger kind of thing and then down south is canis lupus bailei which is the mexican wolf so that's all the way down to mexico city and kind of coming up into the Mogollon Rim here in Arizona. And kind of that's where the transition zone really was, where wolves started getting bigger and and stuff. So if you go from the deserts all Phoenix and kind of that area where it's kind of deserty, there certainly was less dispersal as you got up into the Mogollon Rim. Yep. Some people called those Bailei and some people called them Nubilis. So somewhere in that range. So what was the last year... Um they came damn near to dying out. Right. But not, but there was, a po- there was a point in time, right, when the only ones that existed existed in captivity. 
Yep. What so, what year was that? Well, we so the Fish and Wildlife Service, right? They listed them gray wolves overall, and then um, we went to a trapper by the name of Roy McBride, and so that was seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty time frame, right in there. Okay. And he went down to Mexico and caught some Mexican wolves brought up to start the captivity. So there were none in the U.S.? There was none in the U.S. So he goes down to Mexico. Not even in captivity? Not even in captivity at that time. Oh, so there was a moment when... They're gone from the U.S. Like what year... Okay, so now that I know that, it kind of changed my question. What year were they gone? In in what's now the U.S. And so in the well, so a few kept on coming up in the '70s and stuff like that. But then they so they were coming that. up from Mexico, so they're fa- following kind of trails and stuff across the border and coming up. Are you familiar with uh, Cormac McCarthy's Border Trilogy? I'm not. You haven't read that? How could you? I Man. don't. I, well, I, Dude, I I told you I was impressed by your reading. Listen, in Real you Real. need to read. You need to read Cormac McCarthy's the border the border trilogy. Okay. The crossing, the crossing, all the pretty horses. And I've heard that before. Okay, the crossing is a kid who grows up on the New Mexico Mexico border. He, there's some, they're losing some cattle to a wolf. His dad says, "Catch the wolf and kill it." And he studies up and through trials and tribulations catches the wolf mm-hmm. and can't kill it. And he decides what he needs to do is bring it down to mexico and let it go where um it won't be bothering anything anymore yeah, except for all the cattle in mexico wolf dies <laughs> Listen, the wolf dies anyways but it but it goes it but it uh oh my god yeah so anyhow there you are mexican gray wolf billy and boyd it, you need to read the crossing uh, yeah uh, when you, you go, when you retire or something well before that probably but, yeah uh, so what was the year they were gone so or kind of gone. You well, know. let's just say McBride goes down there and he captures some wolves to start up the captive captive breeding. And, so and where where was he going to catch them? Oh, Durango. He was going all over Mexico, but Durango, kind of the Sierra Madre Occidental, which is all that kind of stretches all the way down the mountains ranges in the west. There. And they had good populations down there, or not? Not really. There's about fifty left at the time when he was oh, down no there. Oh shit! Really? Yeah. And so, so Mc- how, what, what was Mexico's relation? What was their thought on this? Well, we signed an agreement to go get them down there. And they thought even though we got 50, we'll, 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 we're willing to cut a few for you. Because uh, the figuring was uh, they were going to be gone. Oh, they were going to lose theirs too. Yeah, yeah. So pretty widely dispersed and probably going to lose their populations as well. And, yeah, and, and uh, So by about, I mean, Roy McBride was a guy who removed a bunch of wolves, killed a bunch of wolves before this, and then he was hired to go down and capture these wolves. Because he knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. And so he literally started up the recovery program by going down and doing this. What was, his, what was his relationship to it? Uh, to what? Do you feel that he just was interested in the money, or do you feel that he was, uh, was he like, uh, you know, was there something bigger going on, or is it just like he liked to catch wolves, and if that's what catching wolves was like now, that's what he would do? Well, he's more of a lion hunter. He's still alive. Yeah. He's an interesting guy to talk to. He builds traps and stuff like that, and so talk to him on the phone every so often and he's a neat guy is he rooting for the wolves or not rooting for the wolves uh, he, he's probably just he just recognizes him as an animal out there on the landscape doesn't hold him in this giant special regard right he's been through both sides yeah. of it so and, and i want i want to step back just to just to make sure all the context is like um so i, I keep trying to find ways to phrase this 
what year was it when when it would have been fair to say that they were like what was the last point at which they were still plentiful in Arizona and New Mexico their historic range in the lower 48 ah man the 50s maybe 40s 50s 60s there was some that were brought out a fair number but again most of those were still kind of coming up from Mexico but that would be the time frame when there was still some and then by the 70s it was dismal there's nothing and then by the oh when we rode up in 95 there was some surveys down in mexico and there was no more mexican wolves in mexico either. Well, so they did they did lose them down there yeah so they were gone as well and so what we got left with was um this captive population and uh through genetics and stuff we found a couple other animals that were pure mexican wolves in captivity that have been long-standing captive populations at different places just some hobbyist had yeah so it was ghost ranch was one lineage that we refer to it now there and um and, and they proved to be that they were still in genetically intact yeah pure Mexican they had wolf. bred with dogs or whatever yeah so so how many were there at this point in captivity well so there was uh that that's the start of the captivity was seven animals so that's what started our captive population. By so the, the t- whole population bottlenecked down to seven. Yep. And they can, they can withstand that kind of thing. Well, wolves are, because they disperse a long ways, they do pretty good with genetics. So if you can raise them up and so you can deal with the bottleneck, like grizzly bears in Yellowstone bottleneck pretty severely when they shut down the, the dumps. Yep. But then the population goes back up broadens back out pretty quickly and then you get that they can deal with that you don't lose as much genetic diversity yeah so once you start producing them in captivity and you do a fair bit of that then it works out okay it's less than ideal though yeah but it's better than none right blackfooted ferrets down to 16 at the time so that's and they came out of that yeah, they bred them in captivity, and they're putting them out in various areas. So Wyoming, Arizona, um, all over the place. So when they were down to seven um, in the late 70s, mm-hmm. um, what number did they hit in captivity? Well, before we did, I mean, 82, I remember we did a recovery plan, and it was they were saying it was around 20, 25 or something in captivity. And where, where were they? Uh, they just go to zoo, zoological institutes, so they kind of start scattering them around all over the place. Just so like one bolt of lightning couldn't kill them all one day? Yeah, that's yeah. a good idea, right? Yeah, <laughs> spread them out. Uh, and then uh, w- when we started doing releases, there was about 150. So in 98, we started doing releases up here, and there was somewhere 200, 100. 50. Now there's 250 to 300 in captivity. All right, but that's okay. That's a huge jump. Yeah. When you say that, when we started doing releases. So yeah. how, like, how'd that all come? Like, lay that story out. How we started doing releases? No, like, where, who wanted to do it, who didn't want to do it, where was it going to happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't here at the time. I'm not that old. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, anyways, I, I think in general, when you look at releases and, uh, going to do reintroductions. A lot of people who are local in the area 
who are raising livestock, who are hunters out there, are generally opposed to wolf reintroductions because it's another predator that's competing on the environment. Yep. And so when you when you lay it out like that, those were the folks who didn't want to do it. Uh, at the time, New Mexico Game and Fish didn't want to uh, do it. And um, so... Yeah, it's so similar with the gray wolf reintroduction in the north where the yeah, states state i mean in a very general sense the states were uneasy yeah yeah because it or beyond uneasy you bet you bet so it affects right game populations are part of that equation so if you're impacting game populations and stuff like that as a state agency and where your constituents are which are broadly hunters and fishermen um they, when you're talking about reintroducing a predator, right, that's not the most popular position yeah. for those guys to be in. But it from the, oh, go ahead. It wasn't gone that long from the landscape, right? So it was like, and for many adults, it was probably still in their memory that these wolves had been around. And I'm guessing that if you guys were breeding them, the, the plan was always to reintroduce them. It wasn't like you bred them up and then all of a sudden said, oh, what about this thing? Yeah, so. Reintroduction. So in 82, they said, well, we only got 20, 30 animals in captivity, so all we can imagine is finding an area that's uh, 10,000 square miles that we can get 100 wolves to exist in the wild. And that's not recovery, but that's all that we can imagine. And so these guys that were writing it up, that was the extent of their imagination for the Mexican wolf. That's what they envisioned. Yeah. But, that's, but we'll get into this, but that's still kind of the plan now. Well, no, we've 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 envisioned a little bit more. Envision more. <laughs> we've so, grown a little bit since 1982, but just all right, a little bit. But but you're operating. So the agency that you work for mm-hmm. is operating under is operating under sort of mandates or the legal framework of the Endangered Species Act, which signed into law by Nixon in 72, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's not real. It's not real gray about what that means for. I mean, when a species gets listed, it means that we have a national priority to like work toward delisting to recover the species. Ah, absolutely. And the- so it's like in a, in a way, it's it's not it's not so much that like a guy decides to go out and do a reintroduction. Like it's a little more complicated than that. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean it's like a federal mandate. Well, right. And so you write an, an environmental impact statement is what it's called. And so it's hundreds of pages. You put it out to the public. They have comments on it. And then you write a rule that says here's a non-essential experimental rule that kind of loosens up the restrictions yeah. overall that is placed from the Endangered Species Act. Oh, because you did it as, they did it as an experimental herd here or yeah. an experimental population. Right. And they didn't do that. They didn't do that in the north. Well, they did. They did it in um, Yellowstone and Idaho. With experimental status. Experimental status, non-essential experimental status. Oh, it did? Status. Okay. But in uh, Montana, they were endangered because they were naturally coming down from Canada into Montana. So there was already a population in Montana mm-hmm. before those reintroductions ever occurred. So they kind of segmented out zones, and most of it was experimental, too. Yeah, to, to back up, I just want to... And correct me where I go wrong. So I just want to explain this to people that uh, 
trying to think of a good a good case scenario. So, um, I take the Bitterroot Mountain Range. When when grizzly bears were listed in the seventies, listed under Endangered Species Act protection in the seventies, uh, they were focused on recovering some areas that had remnant populations of bears, and there was mountain ranges nearby that historically had them, but didn't anymore. And it, the animals are treated differently if they naturally went into a mountain range than if they were put into a mountain range. Right. So if they, sh- if they walked over there, they carried with them full ESA protections. And if they let them go in there, there's so much like political pushback to letting them go that they would make compromises and declare them um, an experimental status, which gives you a lot more leeway on lethal control of problem animals and other stuff. So I remember this debate raging among grizzly advocates of being like, do we go with the sure thing and put grizzlies into the bitterroots where they're going to have only marginal protection or do we play the long game and wait for them to walk in? And I think that was part of the, the government even proposed that for grizzly bears in terms of the central Idaho wilderness doing a reintroduction in there under non-essential experimental uh, because it gives you a lot of leeways. It gives you a lot of leeways for uh, not leeway. It gives you a lot of leeway for controlling conflict. Sure, for right. So for right now, um, people out there, if the, they see wolves attacking cattle on their private land, they can shoot the wolf, and that's completely legal. It's within our rule that we put in place. Uh, if they see on private land um, wolves in the act of attacking a dog. Right now, they can shoot the wolf. So they have certain measures that they can take in place. And then uh, to mitigate cattle conflict, we can control wolves as well, either by removing them with traps or or shooting them. And so all this is flexibility that isn't allowed under standard endangered species stuff. The other thing is you have uh, Section 7 consultations on any land management action. And so that's where the, the Forest Service comes into play we don't have to do Section 7 consultation with the wolf in the non-essential experimental. So we're not restricting any land use activities out there because of the presence of wolves. Oh, I got you. So someone that wants to do, like if someone wants to do some mineral development on their land, they're not faced with that it's that it's gray wolf recovery area and that their permit process gets hung up. Right. right. Yeah. So now back up again. Early on, it was like, okay, we need how many acres? Uh, It was 10,000 square miles. 10,000 square miles. Right. And who, how did, how was that selected? Well, so it's the EIS process. Um, They spent uh, some time selecting between different areas. Arizona Game and Fish did a study in terms of different areas. One area was the White Sands Missile Range that Mm -hmm. fell out all that. Another area was the Blue Range. Why'd that area get rejected? Well, it was included in the final rule. So oh, the White okay. Sands was there. We never did reintroductions there. It was a backup spot. But really, there's not a lot of prey in that area. It's not high. Uh, by the time 98 hit, most of the mule deer pretty low in terms of population sizes. And, and so we didn't ever choose to put wolves out in that area. Um, in the Gila and... For the, fear that they would starve or for fear that they would just split yes both <laughs> yeah so that they would split or starve yeah the ones that survive would split 
and the ones that stayed would starve. Yeah, so, I got you. They couldn't live off Ibex on the... Uh, that's a tough living, man. Those Oryx out there. Oryx, yeah. yeah, those are... I, I wouldn't want to take down an Oryx with my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so that area was within the area, but wasn't like everything you need. Right. And I've, I've hunted that. I've hunted... Uh, I ran lions with a buddy of mine in the Blue Range. Yeah. And every trailhead's got signs about wolves, you know. Right. And then, well, there's lots of elk there, man. There's yeah. a pile of elk. So right now you're talking Gila, 22,000 elk in the greater Gila National Forest. And over on the Arizona side, these are the two forests where we did it to start with. On the Arizona side, eight to 10,000 on the two little chunks that we did it on. So You might, you probably know this. Did you know that at a time, I'm sure you know this, that at a time New Mexico had no elk. Right. Yeah. Talk about a bottleneck. Right. And you know. Zero to 70,000 elk. Yeah, hunters and fishermen set the stage for wolf recovery by reintroducing elk, by caring about the land, caring about these ungulates that are out there and, and reestablishing big herds of ungulates. Yeah, but now we're like, that ain't why we did it. <laughs> well, that's not why they did it, right? They did it for hunting, right? Yeah. But, uh, no, did it for, yeah, hunting as a very large umbrella term. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, you know, if you go and look, like in Kentucky, which is, engaged in a reintroduction of elk the guy like the odds of drawing elk tag in kentucky are like a percent like the guys that work on that reintroduction are never going to draw elk tag right you know i mean they're just doing it for doing it uh, it's the land between the lakes out there is that where they're doing it at no no they're doing it in southeast kentucky all that recovered coal mine you know the, the mountaintop removal coal mine uh-huh when they when they did uh you know the mitigation prior now the what, what's that remediate is it remediation remediation yeah the remediation plan for a lot of that mountaintop coal mining basically it's created little prairie patches on top of those mountains and created all these grasslands so earlier i said new mexico had zero elk at one point in time there were zero elk east of the mississippi and now there's elk herds in 11 states kentucky's got ballpark the recovery plan was ten thousand. Now it's kind of like the, the semi-official number is 14,000 elk. Some people think it might be 20,000 elk. It's the biggest herd east of the Mississippi, and it lives on those things. But the point being that, um, yeah, you might be like, oh, you're just doing it because you want to shoot one. And people there are like, dude, I can tell you one thing that ain't going to happen is me drawing an mo- elk tag in Kentucky. But I still got involved in the process. The same way, there's a lot of people involved in wolf recovery that have no intention of shooting one. Right. Matter of fact, I'd venture to say everyone involved in wolf recovery has no intention of shooting one. No, but I'd like to see you get there, right? You want to see it where it's a huntable species, where it has populations robust enough. Because of what be, that would mean. Yeah, yeah. Because that would mean you had a sustainable population. Yeah, so that's great then at that stage. And so uh, that's a wonderful thing. I think if you go back to the 30s, though, when they were doing the elk reintroduction or the 40s, I wonder if there wasn't more focused on hunting, f- hunting and, sure. and stuff no, like that. Make it, yeah, I think making a resource, man. I, 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 no, absolutely. And then you still had a cult. There was still a cultural memory of having hunted them too. Right. You know. But yeah, no. It's it's it, when I say it's like an um, hunting as an umbrella idea that 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 pushes that kind of stuff. Because I think it's not that someone goes down the path of doing that, thinking like, oh, next year I'll be hunting them. Right, you're, right. you're playing a long game and it's not just like totally pragmatic now a guy that goes and buys a truckload of bluegills to dump in his private pond <laughs> is focused on the very near-term future you know he's like a different fella 
than a guy who's like, let's go through all this hassle and catch a wolf down in Mexico and breed it up, and maybe in 20 years we'll have something. All right. You know? So when it came to be that, that you were identifying land, when I say you, I'm using it loosely, it wasn't, you weren't going to find a ranch big enough to do this. Oh, uh, no. No, uh, and even, so we set up on Forest Service land, and even that, uh, we had a rule where we'd remove them if they, uh, if they strayed outside of the Gila and Apache National Forest. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so when they went outside of that, we removed them. But we just recently... Lethally or just brought them back into the middle? Uh, just brought them back in the middle or unless they're killing cows and stuff like that. And that's a death sentence, killing cows. Well, not, I mean, if you kill quite a few of them, yeah, that's a death sentence at that stage. But, yeah. Um, so anyways, even that size of an area, which is really big, was too small. Because wolves... You guys, re- I mean, you realize after the fact it was too small. Yeah, yeah, they were outside the boundary. We spent a lot of time chasing wolves outside the boundary, and that's kind of inconsistent with recovery. So right now we have a a broader area that we put out. So right now wolves can range anywhere south of I-40 in New Mexico and Arizona. And be in the okay. Yeah. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, What's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code 
meat eater at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. What was... What was the... Is the ESA, is the Endangered Species Act so powerful that the Forest Service had to say, okay... Well, sure. I mean, that's part of our mandate also is uh, recovery of endangered species. Okay. So we're partnered up with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to implement the Endangered Species Act. But the fun kind of comes into uh, the work is when you have multiple use objectives on the Forest Service land. You know, you've got um, livestock grazing, you've got timber harvesting, you've got recreation, you've got all these activities going on on public land. Plus, now you're trying to reestablish and uh, recover a predator. That's where the heavy lifting and work comes in. Yeah. You mean balancing out those interests? Balancing out. I imagine the most, so the two big, not compromises, the two big conflict areas would be hunters in a general sense. Yep. And then livestock producers. Absolutely. Who hold... um, who hold private property on the borders of this and who hold grazing leases on the inside of it. Yeah, probably a lot of the heavy lifting comes with our livestock grazers and permittees, trying to prevent the conflicts and reduce the conflicts and uh, providing the the communications with those folks to let them better understand what's going on and what to expect. Uh, That's that's where all the, the real challenges lie. Yeah. How might those challenges manifest? You know, I mean, like on a, on a ground person level, what's a, what's a common sort of conflict that happens? Well, you know, the big conflicts obviously is the direct uh, depredation of livestock by the wolves, mm-hmm. and trying to first of all trying to find ways to prevent that, and then when it does happen, um, working with the compensation programs to hide, to try to compensate these permittees that have losses and. And there's some good um, compensation programs in place to help uh, help recover some of those losses that do occur. Uh, those compensation programs are far from perfect, but uh, they do provide a way to compensate the permittees for losses that they could take. Um, you and, know, and going into it, you guys, like you had to have known, right? That the minute, like, how many did you let go the first time you let them go? I was three packs in '98 in the in March of 1998. And how many were in a pack? Uh, you know, around five. 
uh, some, uh, well, there was yearlings and some uh, and an adult pair. So a standard at that time, they were getting ready to breed, bred up. So they're going to have pups in April, May. And they had no institutional memory of hunting within that pack. They'd been live. They'd been captive. Yeah, yeah. They hadn't hunted at all. It's interesting because some of the wolves that came right out of captivity, uh, less than a month, some of the ranchers are saying, yeah, they killed an elk right out of here, right out of the right out of the gate. So it's kind of just... They just knew what they were up to. It's just programmed into them, right? To, so when they hit the ground, how long? Went, how much time went by before someone's like, hey, those sons of bitches killed my cow? Uh, I think we got through 98 without an actual depredation. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 98 was a good year, but it's certainly every year since then. How many? Been depredations. Well, so you kind of say it on a per uh, 100 wolf basis, right? Because you want to compare to other places and you want to compare year to year. So mm-hmm. as the population grows, you get more and more. So somewhere between 20 to... 50 cows on per 100 wolves. So it's a fairly significant Yeah, so depending thing, on beef prices, you know, they're killing $20,000 worth of Yeah. $20,000 worth of property. So how many like how, what's the elk per 100 wolves? Elk per 100 wolves, so it's it's four wolves per 1000 elk in our area right now that we're that we're roughly shooting for. So when we did the rule change, No, I mean how many how many okay. I got, I got to think about that one. How, but how many, and I remember just reading this recently in, in the Northern Rockies, a wolf, how many elk a wolf kills per year? So it's, it's basically around 12 to 16. A elk. wolf kills 12 to 16 elk a year. And that's, that's commonly referred to as cow elk equivalents. So a lot of those, that's not the right number. Because a lot of them are calves that are smaller that they kill. Yep. And so you're just trying to base them or bulls that are bigger. So you're figuring a 400-pound animal. Right, right. So you're trying to get it standardized across something. So uh, 12 to 16 out per year. So around like 1,600, around 1,600 elk annually. Yeah. Killed by wolves. Right now, with a population of 100 wolves. How many, how many elk a year hunters killing out of the sa- that same area? Uh, I don't know. That would be a question for New Mexico Game of Fish, but a lot more. Oh, yeah. No, yeah way more. I mean, way, way order of magnitude more, probably. Yeah. Or seven, uh, Mexico's got 70,000. Well, um, we can find it out. You want, Yanni, we find that out? Um, so sort of an ironic point on that front, talking about elk, too, and the relationship between... Uh, livestock production and these different wildlife species that I think is worth dropping in here is that we have we have places in the state, including some of the producers around this border country who have direct conflict or at least perceived direct conflict between cattle production and uh, competition with wild free-ranging elk. Mm-hmm. So um, on the one hand, you have some folks voicing up that, uh, you know, the, the hunters who don't want to compete with wolves for the elk they're trying to kill and you have ranchers who don't want wolves killing their cattle you also have ranchers who don't want elk competing with their cattle so there's kind of this multiple angles of that's an interesting thing i hadn't thought of man have have you guys had of of permit holders of, of people that hold grazing permits on federally managed lands 
Have you ever had someone say, I lose more, I'm losing more pounds of beef to grass competition from elk than I'm losing pounds of beef to direct consumption by wolves? Has anyone ever made that calculation? No, I don't think I've ever heard that argument. Uh, I've, I've heard some ranchers say, you know, I don't tell anybody, but I'm just happy if they kill elk. That's great. I'm happy that the wolves are here killing elk, getting rid of them. But in New Mexico, right, they have a landowner tag uh, thing. So they get distributed elk tags based on how much land they own as well. And so that's kind of the, the interchange. So a lot of the, the livestock owners are also outfitters and guides or yeah. Are heavily dependent on the elk as well and so i get into conversations with some of those guys and they're like i don't want the wolves eating anything <laughs> yeah wolves gotta eat same as worms right <laughs> so what all right i got i got i'm getting like too many questions in my head here so i could I, there's one i keep on ask and that is behold don't don't answer it yet because i want to do another one before i forget what all have they eaten that you know about to date okay like what are they eating and but while you sit on that one what um when the when the reintroduction occurred how universal was disapproval among livestock producers who are running cattle on the recovery area or private lands surrounding the recovery area you know that was before my time i've been in the program for about three years now uh -huh. but i would imagine it's pretty consistent with what it is now um a general Lack of support for the recovery of the General wolves. lack of support. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a competition for them. It's perceived that this large predator was taken off the landscape uh, because it was problematic for them, and then now government wants to put it back in. So it's it's hard for them to come fully on board on, yep. on supporting that. And what would you say the same thing on the hunting community, general lack of support, or is it more mixed? It's got to be more mixed. I would say it's definitely more mixed. I sit on both sides. I'm, I'm not from here, but I, I, I was in a state that had it. I sit on both sides of it. One, I think it's immoral, and I don't throw that word around very often, but I think it's immoral to drive species to extinction. I think it's like playing God with God stuff, right? I think it's like a, 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 a grievous sin to knowingly eliminate a species from Earth, Okay. On the other hand, I, I used to hunt it. We hunted an area through its, we hunted an area that we started hunting in the Northern Rockies the year of the reintroduction. And we, within a handful of years, we were hunting one third as many elk as we were when we started hunting it. Now we got better all the time. So my brother, he still, he still hunts it. He still kills elk every year even though he's hunting a third as many as he was before, but he's just like his knowledge of the area has kept pace with the diminishment of the herds. Right. And of course you wait and hope that the elk get used to it and figure out how to deal with them. Well, I think, I, I think you can point to different management units, different areas, and the whole gamut of prey responses occurred with wolves being present there. So it's not universally... All of a sudden, wolves show up, and you're driving elk to extinction. No, that's the, different, funny, that's the funny thing too. I always areas. bring up to people, man, is like the funny thing I always bring up to people is like, why does everybody? Okay, dudes like me are always, uh, dudes like me are always like, oh, the wolves are killing everything, but everyone wants to go hunt in Alaska, right? I hunt Alaska all the time. 
Alaska, wolves in Alaska occupied 95 or 96% of their historic range. So I'm like, if that's true, why does everybody want to go hunt Alaska? You guys should steer clear because it's full of the damn wolves. Right. So, so uh, there is like, it's a little more complicated than what people would have it be because everyone's waiting in line to go up there. Right. And they hope they see a wolf. Right. And so the area, I mean, I'm not sure the area of the year, but I worked up there on, on wolves shortly after the reintroduction in Montana and then Wyoming and those areas and kicked around. And, um, you know, it, there was an incredibly hard winter. There's wolves reintroduced and they're harvesting the crap out of cows in certain areas because they want to reduce the number of elk. Yeah. So outside of Yellowstone, all three of those things happen simultaneously. Yeah. So people look at it through these wolf-colored glasses, right? So they're just, well, the only thing that's changed is there's wolves. Well, there's a lot of things that changed in that particular thing. In some areas, wolves are there, elk are still high, same hunting stuff. And in other areas, that's not the case. So the more predators, so grizzly bears, wolves, lions, coyotes, when you have the, and, and humans, when you have the complete suite of predators, right, you have more chance of driving down uh, populations of ungulates than you do, uh, say, down here, where you don't have grizzly bears, as one thing, and you don't have heavy winter mortality as another thing. Yeah, but you have lions. You do have lions. We looked at some stuff they did out of Idaho where they figured they were losing, pre-wolves, they were losing 30 calves per hundred to lions. Mm-hmm. And when wolves came in, it was they were losing a total of probably 40 calves per hundred. So they were losing 10 calves per hundred for wolves. I mean, it's like ballpark figures. Sure. But the way this is explained to me is people were very accustomed to 30 calves per hundred. It has always been that way, and they knew what that looked like and what it felt like and what it meant for harvest rates. Mm-hmm. But then when that little extra chunk got carved out of there, it was felt very acutely and people then sort of blamed all 40 calves per hundred on this new thing rather than looking at it as a a little addition right and it's harder to recover so if you're a hunting if you're a manager out there right you're used to saying okay i'm harvesting cows because i want to drive down the elk population i'm going to drive it down i'm going to harvest cows and then, okay, I'm going to stop my har- cow harvest because I want it to go back up. Wolves, pred- predation in general, can slow that increase, right? So it's harder to have this rapid rebound, I got you. rapid control kind of stuff that you're used to having. Where you're just working that valve and like... Right, right. So it's, it's a different thing that people have to get used to as well. Because the one thing you can control is, is human harvest out there. And so Up in the northern Rockies, they're still shooting shitloads of cow out. Yeah. I like I love hunting. I have conversations all the time with people and I'm like if I re, if I thought reintroducing wolves was going to prevent me from hunting, I would have been against it a long time ago. <laughs> I I love to hunt elk, I love to hunt deer, I love being out there and doing that stuff. So that's that's an important part of who I am. But a thing that frustrates hunters, I think, is that you have some people, okay, you got you have way the, the extremes, right? You got the guy who is like they they're gonna kill every last elk and there won't be an elk left right and on the other hand you got people who i swear they're trying to tell us that wolves eat nuts and berries right you know and i feel like i i hear it in each of my ears i'm hearing from like these two people 
Wolves eat elk <laughs> <laughs> and cows. So that's, I mean, that's what wolves, a little bit of deer, but the deer is a little bit, a lot less taken, at least down here and in the Northern Rockies where there's an elk deer. Why do they like elk so much? They're just a perfect package, man. It's just, they're in a good herd. You get to chase them and there's uh, something falls behind. Something's weak in that group. So they, uh, they get them and they know where they are. They like, being in flat areas where wolves like to be and hunt. They like hunting that flat terrain. Wolves like hunting flat terrain. Sure, because it's you got to run. You're chasing them down, you know, so um, flat terrain's better. Lions like the steep stuff, right? Yeah, because so. it's more of a, a of an ambush hunt. Yep. You know, I think the one trend I have seen is the, um, as the wolf population increases, the hunter community is becoming more involved in the issue and more concerned um but more concerned about the increase in wolves or more concerned about helping wolves out well no more concerned about how the wolf population is impacting their uh choice of 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 prey the the elk okay so the one thing the program is doing is um studies to help really understand what what it's doing to the population and the impacts and i don't know what what is it what do you guys feel that it is doing I'll let John kind of speak to that a little bit more. Well, right now, I mean, so far we haven't, there's no detectable impact. So that's what the state agencies say all the time. There's no detectable impact. Well, that's that's a pretty significant change, right, to detect when you're talking 22,000 elk or 10,000 elk if you're talking Arizona or New Mexico. So... Um, have you found it yet? No. Why not? Unless I start going like by unit by unit, it's going to be tough. I just haven't found it. And you can't type. You tell me. You can't type in how many elk are killed in New Mexico and come up with a number. Well, and it's not all in New Mexico. It's just the Greater Gila, right? So oh, where yeah. the wolves are. So, so you do got to do a unit by unit. Search. So to be fair, Carl, you don't just know this in the like in your mind. I I don't know that in my mind, and I think it's pretty hard to come up with an answer because, and this this gets back to what you're saying about the mountaintop removal and remediation work happen and kind of painting a picture of what the landscape looks like. And for folks who aren't uh, familiar with this chunk of ground that our experts here are referring to in Southwest New Mexico and Eastern Arizona, you're talking about some of the most remote, rugged country in the lower 48. And it begins from the East. You've got the Aldo Leopold wilderness, which is about a quarter million acres into the Gila proper, which is somewhere 570-some thousand acres. And you got the Blue Range Wilderness west of that, and that butts up against the state line. But then the wildland continues because you have the Blue Range Primitive Area that I know, Steve, you're familiar with, west of the New Mexico-Arizona state line, which is kind of de facto wilderness. Um, and then that's surrounded by some of the still most remote and undeveloped national forest system land so you're talking about two different states. You're talking about a large number of game management units for each of those states. Um, and right off the top of my head, I, d- I don't have a number, but I, d- I think for folks to kind of get this vision, this image of how remote and wild the landscape is, and a little anecdote to that, to that end, um, there's a place there at the western side of the Gila Wilderness. You guys maybe can help me fill in the details, but it's known for having the best night sky anywhere in the lower 48 because you are as far as you can be from an anthropogenic light source and the, the sky viewing is is deemed to be the best anywhere in the lower 48 because you're so remote 
So this is a chunk of country that um, is massive, you know, 10,000 square miles. It includes these different wilderness areas. Um, and it's a place where wolves have been hunting elk for a lot longer than uh, white dudes have been on the landscape. Yeah, they only missed, they missed like, uh, what, they missed 30 years of the action. Yeah, and even then you still had these stragglers coming up. Yeah. You know, like uh, you, you were referring to in that great Cormac McCarthy book. So I guess the... the a good way to settle on it is so so you're saying that the New Mexico fishing game who and to generalize that as a as a as a as a state agency with a state that was generally uneasy with the introduction they have said that they haven't they haven't noticed uh certainly the Arizona game of fish has been they do they've had a little bit more uh, look at this and they say they haven't noticed an impact from wolves but the wolves are a low number right now right what are they at so 110 so they fluctuate around and it, dip, it dips up and down but it generally hovers around 100 yeah yeah it's so well for the last three three years three four years it's been around 100 around 100 and you guys growing. don't feel you do or do not feel that that's sustainable that's that's there can be more than that in no the no no but I'm saying like like minimum sustainability like for instance we 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 spoke with a guy um, with the USGS who was working on grizzly bear recovery in, in a tri-state area in the northern Rockies and you know there's a lot of debate about how many there are you know I think the official number is 642 everyone agrees that there's more because their their counting system is flawed and they all know it so they're like 642 probably more or whatever the hell the number is right and he says in his opinion he's like you could have that number living in that patch of ground for 100 years he's like that area and that number is a sustainable number in a sustainable area right do you feel that do you guys feel that 100 where they are now that they're too vulnerable or do you feel that you could have that for 100 years? Well, so our our rule that we just put out, we said that our goal was 325 in that big area south of I-40. 325. 325. So but you, but they sold to, it in on 100. Our, our goal is to get to 300, 325 right now. Initially, our goal was to get to 100, which was the initial thing that folks said wasn't recovery. And we I recognize that. And is so, 342 recovery? Well, 325. Oh, the, 320, sorry, I'm mixing up two different We numbers, can just throw out whatever random numbers you want. <laughs> Three, yeah, was 325 is recovery? Uh, we haven't defined recovery yet. We're just we're, we're redoing the 1982 rule. And literally the draft should come out in a couple of weeks, three, four weeks. And so, so I, uh, you know, I can't talk about that right now, but yeah. Well, what are out. some of the definitions we're talking about? Because I guess what I'm referring to is, well, in the case, with, in the case of grizzly bears, um, when, when looking at that number is you're, you're sort of saying like, have you achieved a sustainable population on a piece of habitat that seems stable where it's reasonable to assume that if we engage in business as usual, we would, into the foreseeable future, not run into a problem. Now, I think if you have, like, with the Florida Panther, right. for a long time we were in a position where someone said, 
can this continue? Can you have a population of 25 lions in, in South Florida? And the people said, no. Right. This will not, like, there's no reason to think that in 100 years we'll have 25 lions in South Florida or however bad it got in South Florida right. before they supplemented the population. So there's, I mean, for recovery purposes, there's what we refer to as a three R's, which is a re- resilient population, which means there's enough of them out there to, you know, have Jeanette and to represent a population that's good and stable and all those kind of things is going to survive. And then there's um, redundancy, which is there's multiple populations. So not all your eggs in one basket. So there's right now we ha- there's a reintroduction going on in Mexico that's south of the border that just started. And so that's, uh, that's the redundancy that you would see. Is it, see. It's, it's less controversial there, right? No, it's equal. I mean, they still it's kill cattle and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and then there's the uh, representation is the third R, which is genetically robust. And, um, you know, it's across, spread across the landscape to represent a fair amount of that historic landscape yeah. that's out there. So those are the things. So when you look at 325, is that recovery, um, you would say that that population probably is pretty resilient it's enough of them to live on that landscape. And so it may be one population in the future that, that works towards recovery. Yeah. But there's more things that go into it, right? So let me throw in a couple additional details here because you hear John using some of the qualifiers like probably and we think. And what we're talking about here, you know, the term for this is we run what's called a population viability assessment. And essentially, you never can say with certainty that at any point in time in the future, you will still have that species in that place. Yeah. But you can be increasingly confident in the persistence of a species uh, when you have more individuals and when you're talking about a shorter time frame. So it would be, for example, easier to say, we are highly confident that we have 100 wolves now, and if we keep 100 wolves in three years, we'll still have 100 wolves, as opposed to saying, if we kept 100 wolves on the landscape, a hundred years from now, yeah. we're less confident. So the two things that really play into yeah, I realize this that's risk a wild assessment ass number to throw out one hundred years because yeah, and a lot can change. I mean, a meteor you know yeah. could hit something catastrophic could happen that would eliminate the animal. So there's never this certainty. So it's really a risk assessment, and the degree of risk associated with extinction of a population. Um, you have more confidence in your assessment of security in the near future than in the long future, and when you have more animals than less animals. Those are kind of some common basics. Then another point in this whole discussion of population ecology, um, you familiar with the Ali effect? No. At all? You ever hear about that? I've heard the word, but no, I'm not. Okay, so just for the benefit of listeners who take an interest in wildlife ecology and science, it's a good place to throw this in. There's a gentleman by the name of Warder Clyde Ali who came up with this notion that kind of flies in the face of one of the factors that we often take for granted in wildlife ecology. And that is the notion that as competition decreases, as the number of animals on the landscape of your species decreases, you do better. So we talk about density dependence, right? The higher the higher density gets, the tougher competition is, so the, the less well an individual animal will do. So the Ali effect essentially is the inverse of that. The notion that if you drive a population down far enough and it's a social species or a species that benefits from the existence 
of conspecifics, you can push that species towards extinction. Yeah, like so, like, like what you'd see with passenger exactly, pigeons. Exactly. You're going to have a billion or none. Right, or, that's a classic example. Is, yeah. So with passenger pigeons, they think one of the key drivers was the fact that you needed these huge flocks in order to elicit normal reproductive behavior. And you had that last lonely passenger pigeon, Martha, dying in the Cincinnati Zoo, I think it was September 1st, 1914. And they tried like hell to get that bird to breed when there were still other males around, but they lacked those massive uh, flocks that elicited the breeding behavior. So that's a classic example of Ali effect. And this guy, Warder Clyde Ali, he did a lot of research looking at uh, species that are a little less sexy than wolves or passenger pigeons. He did a lot of work with like goldfish, for example where the regurgitation of food from one goldfish in a tank can be beneficial to the other goldfish. And goldfish rooting up around the bottom like, like carp uh, are churning up food that's available. And so if you think about wolves and their predatory behavior, they're another species where if you push them to the point where they're no longer able to locate pack members and function as that super organism and find and kill prey through that social structure, you may have the potential to push them beyond that point in contrast to grizzly bears, as we've been talking about, where you know you need obviously two to tango in terms of reproduction, but the predatory behavior has nothing to do with depending on pack yep. mates. Got you. In fact, they seem to kind of like a little loneliness, the yeah. breeding age females. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the interesting part for wolves is they're good at finding each other, long, long distance dispersals and that kind of stuff. And most of the packs just start out as two animals. And then you have pups. It's just a family group and their offspring. And so that's how the pack's established. That's what they are. Do you have any sense? Um, I guess we should finish this part of it up before we get it. I want to talk about what they eat and why they eat it and how they find can, it. Can I slip in a question that, that's relevant here? Is that we, we and I figured we'd, we'd hit on it, but that number jumping around or not jumping around but being moved or reevaluated from 100 to 325 that's got it. i think that's probably one of the most contentious topics of, of all with wolves isn't it well, it, at least i hear it a lot where they're like well they first said it was going to be 50 moving then the it goal was post. 100 yeah moving the goal but post. that's serious stuff man the goal I, post moving is a real thing right 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 so i'd just like to hear like well and especially you probably Vincent Day, how you guys handle that well, that's actually more of a Fish and Wildlife Service number that <laughs> they're, they're struggling with. Today. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So let, let, let me ask this: like, like to, to what to what you're saying? What one the first time when 100? Yeah, that wasn't like that they would delist at 100, right? That right. was just a number, like an objective. That was just an interim goal. It was their wildest imagination. They said that's not recovery. And so that's what we're trying to define right now. So that's the difference. You're trying to set the goalpost for right. the first time right? for what D, when delisting will occur. Exactly. And people misconstrued then. Well, yeah, because they, they, that's one of the areas in which, not, not the agency, but it's one of the areas in which the public becomes obstructionist is when po- recovering populations reach what we all agree recovery was supposed to look like. Where all the you know the, I almost hear this term so much. Where all the stakeholders have said, okay, we agree that that 100 or you know 1,000 of X species. At that point, everyone here now agrees that they will be delisted, and and could go back to state management, and they could be open to hunting, whatever the states decide to do. 
And then it starts getting up to where there's a thousand of said animals. Right. And people start filing shitloads of lawsuits and then prevent any dream of ever conducting the delisting. It's not the agency's fault because the agency could be petitioning for the delisting. Well, the agency very much wanted to delist wolves in the Northern Rockies, for instance, the Fish yeah, and Wildlife Service. But they wind up taking the blame for actions of people who are going to use, who wind up using the ESA, not for its intended purpose, but use it as a way to protect animals that they like to look at pictures of on Natural Geographic from any possible chance of human exploitation. But it's our job... Fish and Wildlife Services to do a better job in the process. So we don't lose on the biology. It's the process where we lose in court. So we didn't check some boxes there or something. Oh, they nitpick. Oh, yeah, no, some dude, administration they, they thing. They nitpick horribly. And so that's where the agency can do better. But they're not. And oftentimes the lawsuits aren't even challenging. The lawsuits aren't challenging the, 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 under, the, like the key principles. They're not saying like, oh, in fact... 1,000 of these isn't enough. They'll go after like procedural things. Exactly. Exactly. That's where. Like, oh, no, you need to file the, you filed uh, A, uh, everyone, or you filed B first and you didn't file A and you're supposed to file A before B. So therefore we're going to block this whole thing for a decade. Uh, yeah. The big thing in the Northern Rockies was significant portion of range. So uh, when they, we first tried to do it, we tried to delist Washington and Oregon together with Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. And they said, well, you didn't analyze the wolves cover a significant portion of their range in that area. And so their habitat range. And so it went down on that, among other things. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know. No, but, but I, I, I feel for you because that's one of the ways in which I feel that public, um, public blame, right, when, when, when Again, like dudes like me, like hunting guys or whatever, when they look and they get pissed about how something's not going the way they want, they're not, they don't usually blame like obstructionist groups who are, what I, and this is, I'm, you know, I'm not, this is not these guys in the room talking, this is me talking. When obstructionist groups who are manipulating the law, like that's not who gets the blame. Right. The blame often falls, I feel like, in the wrong place. Well, the government's good to blame. <laughs> no one no, usually but, no one questions you but but the uh so is all right so let, just to get back on track is if, if the 325 or whatever the hell number right they're going to come up with a number is that going to be the number that is regarded as an acceptable recovery objective at which point it would be reasonable for people to expect the delisting process to occur very much so so that's the number that we're going through, we're going through a PVA like uh, what Carl talked about earlier. And it's, and it's reasonable to think it would fall somewhere in the range of around 300 or so. Yeah, somewhere in that. I mean, for one population, and there's consideration on where other populations are, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that, how well the populations are connected, how well dispersal happens between those populations is a genetic component that you got to think about. And so there's a whole bunch of things that go into that. And so me sitting here talking, it, it would be a, a poor representation of the overall, the overall plan. Like what all is going on. Yeah, that will come out. And so it would be much better to, to read it and really digest it. No, I'm with you. So down here, I, I know in other areas um, with, with other species that are going through ESA recovery, and, and, and we should point out that uh, when something makes – the the list 
when someone gets ES something gets ESA listing, that does not generally mean that they're like they got it made. Two percent of the two percent of species that get listed under the ESA listing, only two percent get delisted because they recovered. Right now, I mean, it's a long process. It's a long but, process to get them to that stage. Oh, for right? sure. I'm just, I'm just saying. It's like there's been a handful. Like, no, there's been a, some notable cases, and it's not even the fault of the people commissioned with it. Sometimes they've been uh, things have been listed, and then it turned out that they were gone. Right. You've had things listed, and then they find other populations or definitions change, and they get delisted that way. But it's only like a handful of things. I mean, some notable examples being like bald eagle. Okay. Gray, gray wolf, peregrine falcon, yeah. American alligator. But if you look, there are, I think, over 2,000 species that have gotten ESA listing and a handful. What I'm getting at is my feeling is that when the ESA works real well and we get recovery, I would think people would be dancing in the streets. Yeah, I went to, <laughs> but they generally they generally don't. They generally want to say like, no, it's not. You know, I, I went to a Prairie and Falcon recovery party. So for the delisting, <laughs> they, they did dance in the street. They de- delisting of the Prairie and Falcon, which my father was involved in that recovery. And yeah, yeah, it was a. We were excited. People about were it. happy about it. Oh yeah, it was a great thing. So uh, as biologists, as you celebrate that, you want nothing more in your career. Yeah. I didn't get to go to Northern Rockies recovery party because it, it took so many legal challenges oh, it, and nobody ev- ever knew what dude, was real. Everyone was <laughs> that was it was so sad the the way that just everyone that it just seemed like everyone got burned. Yeah. But I, it was uh it was a tough deal going back and forth like that and then I mean, but it, the good part was that Montana and Idaho were ready to manage wolves and their plans were acceptable. And so even though it went through Congress and it's not the standard way of delisting a, a group, is we were allowed to celebrate that and turn it over to the states earlier than uh, some of the stuff that was holding back. So some the Wyoming plan in particular was just got approved through courts yep. this year. Just so the, yeah, that's great. So now they're delisted up there and that's So you're like your problem now, buddy. <laughs> yeah, all all the folks all the folks that worked on it though, they're all retired, <laughs> moved away and stuff like that. So no no party. <laughs> so what like what let's say um let's say someone draw uh, someone comes up with this idea that Oh, I, I, there's, I, I, there's another question I asked. Do you, are you, are you, do you guys use distinct population segments down here? So are you treating the current recovery area as a distinct population segment, or isn't it far enough along because we don't have two segments? Well, so we just listed the subspecies. So you can list a, a species, a subspecies, or a distinct population segment. So what we did is we listed the Mexican gray wolf as a subspecies. But you might later need to carve off a distinct population segment if this population hits recovery and then you have another population in infancy somewhere, you would need to draw a distinction between the two. Well, you could. You could. But the, the idea is to um, recognize that in different ways. So part of the problem in the Northern Rockies is when they went to delist things, then they're drawing the DPS. So they're designating a species yeah. to be delisted. Right. The idea is that you designate a species – 
yeah. you go through recovery planning and then you delist that species after it's recovered. So you want to designate it early on. You don't want to designate a DPS to delist. Well, I don't, that's a big, that's a problem that's happening with the grizzly bear situation is they listed the species and then that's kind of where it'll get hung up in court, probably. Right, they delisted right. the species and then later they said, man, we've achieved way above recovery in this chunk of ground the size of Indiana. Let's delist this chunk. Right. And it's like the, you know, I got you on a technicality because you can't. So, yeah, that's a problem with it, right? So you want to have the foresight to create uh, population units or alternatives on how you can reduce it to threatened. So make it a threatened species and, and reduce some of the restrictions over range wide over a bigger gotcha. area. And um, so that's. You know, you want to plan and have that foresight in your plan on how you think you should delist the area too, and you avoid problems going forward. So, how much suitable habitat? Um, how much suitable habitat is there? For like, cause it's it's. I think it's helpful on these kind of things to think about where could they be. And so, like, like again, just to keep returning to the grizzly bear situation just because i know it well and it, it sort of provides a parameter to think about this is um there are there are some people well-meaning knowledgeable people who look at the grizzly bear situation and they and they feel pretty confident that as far as suitable habitat goes we've filled it up in the great in the in in Idaho, Wyoming, like areas of the GYE, they'll and then some people argue like, well, no, because there's many more mountain ranges. But there's some people who say like, um, anywhere else, conflict is going to be so high that this really is the suitable patch of ground, and we've filled the suitable patch of ground as full as it can fill. Right. If you look at the Mexican gray wolf, how much, and I'm sure there's varying definitions of it. How much suitable ground could there be? Oh, a lot. So there's enough to where it's not going to limit recovery in terms of numbers to get to a viable population. So the, between Mexico and, and, and the U.S. Yeah, I keep forgetting Mexico. So between those two, there's going to be enough. And the other thing is wolves are pretty uh, habitat generalists. So they're not as specific as grizzly bears are, and they don't kill people. So yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a flaw. That's a flaw in the grizzly bear phenotype or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, they can they can be closer to people there and kind of wiggle in and out of some of these areas and yeah. and, and still be okay. So, outskirts of Rome, Italy, for instance, there's wolves. Um, gotcha. So, so the suitable habitat doesn't become as big of an issue. It's not because like when you draw a suitable habitat for coyotes, you pretty much draw a big circle around the whole country and call it like just follow the coastlines with your pencil and then you kind of draw on it. Wow, we don't want to go that far. Yeah, it's but not, cool, but yeah, it's like, not it's as not, big as grizzly. It's not as much. Yeah, they're yeah. not they're not as like prone to immediate trouble. Yeah, when they fall outside of it. Yeah, because suitable habitat for the bears isn't a matter of where they'll find enough food. Right. It's just a, where they'll have a reasonable chance to go through their lives without winding up in a in, in, in a direct, possibly catastrophic interaction with a human being. I worked on grizzly bears up in Wyoming uh, outside of Jackson. And, I, I, you know, bears are the true denizens of wilderness. 
So a lot of times that's tied to wolves, and I, I would argue it's more bears because they need to be, uh, you know, pretty limited in terms of people yeah. uh, for that interaction with grizzly bears specifically, not black bears, but grizzly bears specifically. And so uh, I always have a soft spot, my, spot for grizzly bears. So I'll go up to Yellowstone and I'll see some wolves and it'll be like, well, yeah. But I, I, I like watching that grizzly bear over oh, there sitting yeah, on top yeah, of man. stuff. I love watching them. Yeah. Um. So you can't really, it, it's impossible to say a suitable habitat. But when you draw the line, there's going to be like a no-go zone. That'll probably always exist. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, when you do a non-essential experimental population, right, you set up your rules in that area, and it's actually area-specific. So right now our area is everywhere south of I-40. You have these things that you can do that you can, you're out there. So north of I-40 right now, we say we'll go get those wolves because we don't want the wolves from the reintroduction being in this area or causing more, not having those relaxed restrictions. But it wouldn't be okay for anyone just to run into one and shoot it north of I-40. No, it's a fully protected and it's a fully endangered species north of I-40 if it shows up there. Oh, because it's not... Ex it's based on so where they it, stand. It carries full ESA protections, but you also have the ability to go round it up and bring it back where it belongs. Yeah, through Fish and Wildlife Service permits, but only, really, only we have that ability at that stage. Uh, do you ever hang out with the trappers? I am a trapper. Yeah. What do you guys use? Padded, padded, like yeah. double long springs, or? Yeah, we use uh, number fours is the primary thing, or fourteens. And what's your typical set that you make? Uh, dirt hole, flat, any of them. You yeah. scout and urine. It, it doesn't, it's more about where than, than what. Are so, they tough? Are they smart about it yet or had they caught on to it yet? No, they're, wolves are tougher than, you catch a lot of coyotes and coyotes are generally considered the tougher ones to catch by trappers out there. And, uh, wolves are tougher just because they're fewer of them, less dense, right? So yeah. 200 square miles for a pack. And so you're trapping over a big broad area and trying to get them to step in one square inch so what's your general like <laughs> what's your general approach on getting on to one like you start out where you get a sighting yeah so you just i mean i mean howling looking on the ground looking for tracks looking for scat just looking trails roads just like you would with a coyote kind of thing and and looking for those travel paths and eventually you do some sets you see where they're coming and going both directional travel and then that's that's where I'm going to set a trap. How many sets? Do you, if you're trying to catch one, how many sets are you putting out? Uh, just a dozen. Yeah. So it's not long line. And because you care about each one, you want it to be, yeah. you're, you're worried about your thing. So we do a lot of things to make sure that that animal is okay. You're checking every morning. You're, you're kind of, you have drags on them. So, and you have springs in line in the chain. Yeah. And so all those things... If it's too cold overnight, we'll monitor every hour with trap monitors. Is that right? Yeah, so they don't freeze a foot or anything yeah. like that. So we're very careful with that because each one is an endangered species. So. What's your preferred bait when you go to do the dirt hole set? The dirt hole set, I like skunk kind of stuff, but there's also a, a bobcat kind of gland lure. Yeah, I know ground that stuff. Up, ground up bobcat works really good. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a reason why wolfers in all the stories, right, they come back and they stunk, right? It's because they got bait all over yourself yeah, when you yeah. come back in. Dude, we used to make some crazy concoctions for bait, you know? Yeah. We call it tainted bait. 
where you take jar cube up meat and put it in a jar and leave it out in the sun and just at the right minute like it start to smell a certain way and get like a coat of oil and then you'd bury it in the ground put glycerin in it mm -hmm. to slow the decomposition and bury it in the ground dig it back up hope there weren't any maggots in it yeah, yeah. crazy bait stuff man okay. kind of an art form but kind of a gnarly art form it is so a quick anecdote here on the wolves north of I-40 deal, and this relates back to this blurry distinction among subspecies. Mm -hmm. um, we had a we had a wolf killed in southern Utah. That, by a dude. Yeah, by a hunter who mistook it for a coyote, and this was in early 2015. Well, about a year prior to that, 2014, that same wolf had been collared in Wyoming. Oh. And it had been seen on several occasions in northern Arizona, close to the Grand Canyon. And it's notable, this is a female wolf, bear in mind, covering hundreds of miles between Wyoming and the Rim. Yeah, and I was trapping for that animal. Trying to catch it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Trapping for it where? Uh, north Rim of the Grand Canyon. Oh, okay. So that was the first wolf known to be in northern Arizona in something like 70 years. And maybe you, you could share some more of the details on that account. But I remember when that was kind of circulating and we were having meetings like at Arizona and people were like, no, no, that, that's probably just like a domestic wolf that got out. Somebody probably, there's a wolf breeder up here who has them in captivity. Yeah. And lo and behold. Yeah, it was a, that's the thing is it's like we went up there and uh, there's a single wolf. So a single wolf, you're trapping for one in a big wide area and you're like, oh gosh, I got no shot. Right, I got to get a step in ten square inches in somewhere between Wyoming and the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a pile of buffalo that were run over by a UPS driver right on the entrance to the North Rim. They have a huntable buffalo population up there on the North Rim of. Also, the, a little bit controversial. Yeah, because they have cows in them, and they have some cow DNA yeah, in them. Beefalo, and there it's the there it's the park that doesn't like them. Right, the park wants to get rid of. They don't want them in the in the park because yeah. they aren't part of the natural yeah. system there. Or maybe they are, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, the the, the UPS driver tried to do the park's work, ran over about eight of them, and this wolf landed in this area, and so it come down and it walked by people, it walked down the road, eat on this pile, giant pile of buffalo carcasses and then walk back up to its bedding area. And so people got photos of it. People were calling in, and you're like, Man, this just doesn't sound like a wild wolf that came all the way down from Wyoming through Utah and now landed in Arizona. Why didn't it get shot somewhere along the way where it's this observable? But we went up there because some of the photos were really convincing, and one of the photos actually showed a radio collar. We were pretty, pretty clearly a radio collar from our stuff. And so... Um, we went up there and we we saw the wolf. So you go up there and set up a camp. Yeah, well, we went and stayed with the park service. Okay. And uh, oh, I got you. Yeah. And uh, we we went up there and the first thing we went out like the first morning, really early in the morning, just to follow the pattern of people seeing it. And sure enough, there it was. And so we had two things: we wanted to get DNA from the wolf one way or another, either capture it or whatever. And so that first day, it it it, it pooped. And we went out there and scooped up a little bit of the, uh, from the outside of the Because intestinal, intestinal cell walls, intestinal cells slough off on the... Yeah. yeah, so we had the DNA right off the get-go, and then we set traps right along the path 
that it kind of walked around and we scattered out some traps and we had a dart gun that if you get close to a wolf, you can shoot a dart at it, but wasn't the case that day. And so, I mean, it came close to our traps a couple of different times, but it's just a single wolf it's wandering. So, it's in so well fed. Yeah. So we, we came really close. I remember one time I saw it in the, early in the morning and I saw it in exactly the same spot. So this is just after we had scattered out the track. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do exactly what I did the other day. And that wolf will wander right into our sets. So I turned around on the road, and I'm just kind of watching it, ways behind it. And instead of just wandering, because that's what I did the day before, it turned around in <laughs> the opposite directions from yeah. all the sets. And I'm like, damn it. So anyways, we never ended up catching it. So I went up to Utah, got shot. and uh, But we did. It was the same wolf and stuff like that. It was, would have helped us to catch it. Did you get the carcass after the guy shot it? Uh, our, it? our law enforcement does. You didn't so, need it for anything? Nah, we didn't get it. So we, we figured out what wolf it was and everything else from the DNA. Why do you think, like, why does a wolf start doing that? It, you know, it's just, it's individuals, right? Some, some people like to wander and see new ground. I think some wolves just kind of set out in a direction and keep going. This wolf got down, all the way down to the Grand Canyon wind. I'm not going to cross the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so that is a turn around, went the other direction, right? Yeah. And went back up. And so you got a little window to catch the wolf in it while it's hanging out in a spot. And we just weren't able to. Some wolves, most of the time, wolves just, you get to be two years old and you leave your pack. So you're. But leaving a big way. Well, you don't have to. They just leave until they find an area where they can make a living or a mate, yeah. a mating opportunity and all that kind of stuff. So most of the dispersal is close so it's pretty close range dispersal and then a few of them are these abnormal really long range movements that are out there i used to know a girl who i, I wanted to go out with real bad never did but she was working on a project um someone's looking at like the how the grand canyon did affect movement mm -hmm. of animals and they were setting hair traps for mountain lions on each side and whoever was running this thing was was testing the idea whether there was no genetic exchange but there is they don't care yeah and lions you know those they'd cliffs. catch the same they'd catch the same like offspring of the same there's like things that you perceive as being boundaries sometimes aren't i was recently looking at some stuff with uh links in alaska that um big swollen rivers every day uh huh. not that they used to be that they like they wouldn't do it and then they realized well not not only will they do it but they'll do it without even thinking twice about it right so the thought was the snake river some of the big rivers there in idaho that wolves wouldn't cross very frequently to get to washington across the snake river canyon and that stuff yep but i every time you say something you're wrong yeah. so wolves won't show up in northern california Wolves are now in Northern California. So uh, wolf biologists pretty well, even wolf biologists underestimate wolves pretty consistently. Is there a feeling in your, in your community, is there a feeling that, that instead of doing all this, that it just would be that if you just wait, the map is going to fill in anyways? Well, I think, I, I think that's the case in some places, yeah. And then, uh, but not with Mexican wolves because you're doing just, the captive thing. There was none left. So, 
You have to, re- yeah, they wouldn't have, have to release them. And then you have genetic constraints because they started from seven animals. That's all you have. So captive represents that genetic diversity that's out there. And so there's some maintenance of that genetic diversity that you want to do out in the wild and do releases continuing through time. Have you guys ever looked at, is it necessary to bring in, even though you'd be like sacrificing the, you'd be sacrificing the genetic integrity, do you ever look at bringing in a northern gray wolf just to, just to be like, it'll get diluted, but it will bring some diversity? So the, uh, that's one of those debates that goes on out there uh, a fair bit. So like the Florida panther yeah. with the lions from Texas that came in and helped rescue the Florida panther. Right now, we don't see the evidence where it, uh, the genetic diversity is restricted, where it's limiting the wolves' okay. population growth and that kind of stuff. So as long as the population dynamics are okay, you, wouldn't, you, don't, you probably wouldn't do that. But, it, if, but they don't, they're, they don't, their genes, like, they're not going through, like, genetic mutation on such a short span of time that they're increasing their genetic differentiation, like, their, their, like, genetic diversity is increasing. No, I mean, that's something that happens over tens of thousands of years, right? Right, but a northern wolf, for instance, is big, 120 pounds, has black coat, has stuff in it that the Mexican wolves don't have. Oh, no, but yeah, but I'm saying, but that's the result of enormous amounts of time passing. Right. I'm saying you don't get like once you get down to a population that had seven animals. Right. Even if you grow that into 300, you still have like you're still feeling that very limited bottleneck of genetic diversity that you had from when you had seven. Right. Right. So we have we have frozen zoos. We, we keep frozen sperm in places, and yeah. so artificial insemination, um, all those kind of things are still an impact. And wolves. Uh, because they disperse so far and travel so widely, genetic diversity is high among wolves uh, in, in wild populations and everything else. And I got so, you. So they're, they're an animal that, so even when you're down to seven, it still represents. A, f- a fair bit of diversity, but yep. uh, every year goes, every generation that goes by, you lose some genetic diversity. So that's just a, a consistence of population size and how much is out there is just kind of a standard thing. So right now, the the captive population that we have represents 83% of the genetic diversity that was in those seven founding animals. I got you. So, and then our wild population represents a percentage of our captive population. So you want to get that as high as possible to at least have all the genes that represented out there that we can. Is there any chance left... Is there any mystery left? Like, might it all of a sudden be that someone in Mexico is going to be like, hey, we found a couple we didn't know about? Yeah, I, uh, there's a, we've had, um, there was one that was in a zoo. It ended up being, having a large part of uh, dogs in it. So they okay. had us, it looked enough from the Mexico colleagues and we had it tested genetically. To, to I, I, I was referring more in the wild. Yeah, they brought it in from the wild, though. They captured it in the wild and brought oh, it in but to it the had, zoo and held it. It held some dog. It had yeah. been tangled up with some dogs. Yeah, and so most of the ones that are left, because it's such a remnant population, I would guess you'd get into them and they'd have some dogs in them, even if you found a pocket isolated somewhere that was... Yeah. But there's always that possibility in in, in Mexico that there might be something down south in Durango or you know, some different places. But the best thing at finding other wolves 
is wolves. So when you're doing a release, there's people who believe there'd be wolves. There was still wolves left out here. They would pop out of the woodwork. Yeah, but you release the wolves out there and you don't find any other wolves. And so there's nothing that doesn't track back to our wolves. So you know there wasn't wild wolves that were out there in this chunk of country here in the New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah. And so they're doing a release now in Mexico uh, since 2011. So as these wolves disperse out and go to different places, if they find other wolves and you say, yeah, well, there's probably other wolves, but they'll find them. How many, uh, how many are guys poaching every year? Oh, that's a hard question, but I mean, 10 that we document, but there's other ones that are undocumented. They get shot. And so some of them are, so people are shooting 10% of the population every year. Yeah, I would say in that in that range, ten to twenty percent in a given year. What? And I know we're getting into things that are hard to quantify. What percent are cases of mistaken identity, and what percent are like dudes that are pissed? Ah, uh, boy. I think a lot of them are mi- uh, mistaken identity. Personally, I think down here in terms people of think the, they're shooting a coyote. Yeah, I mean we've solved some cases where people say that, and they think it's a coyote that they shot and turn themselves in and i always tell people as long as you're honest with me you'll get it it's like if you shoot you're out there you're hunting and you shoot a cow because you thought it you have a bull tag and you thought it had antlers that were massive there and it turned out it was a tree yeah or whatever you know you might get a ticket for that but as long as you're honest about it and turn yourself in then you get less of a fine than you would if you tried to hide it, bury it. Yeah, I've never heard anything to contradict that from any game warden I've ever spoken with. They put a high premium on the guy that comes and says, hey, man, did I mess up, and I'll yeah. take you and show you where it happened. You know? Yeah, so if it's an honest mistake, I expect people to be honest about it. Yeah. And so if it's nefarious, then I expect them to be secretive about it. So, uh, <laughs> the, so some number of them are, are, do you ever get people that are poaching them because they want them, the hides? Or, or they usually poach them just because they want them dead? Everybody always does. Nobody wants the hides. So they're, they're poaching them because they're, because they're pissed. Well, the ones that are, that are killing them nefariously, yeah, they're just they're killing them. And then have you guys, uh, when I say you guys, has anyone ever, who, who prosecutes it? So it's a Fish and Wildlife so Service. So it's a federal offense. Yeah, and then it goes... Uh, they make the case, our special agents do, so they do all the investigation and stuff like that uh, with assistance from states, mm-hmm. sometimes in the whole wide network, Forest Service, law enforcement. Everybody's involved in that. They have a network. But then it goes to district attorneys and federal kind of cases on Has that it, Have stuff. any of them been prosecuted? Yeah, there's been a, a couple here or there that have been prosecuted. It's I mean, stiff. They're, They they're, come down on them hard or no? Well, they can, but I don't think it depends on the circumstances. So in the one case that I'm aware of, I think they came down pretty hard because the person uh, picked up the carcass and moved it from Arizona to New Mexico. And so at that stage, that's a Lacey Act violation because you cross state lines as well, which is a felony. And so... Why'd he move it? Just trying to hide evidence, you know, doesn't want it where it laid down and... Moved it away, and so I think that person that came down, it was early on, and I think he got a little bit of jail time associated with that. Other people that are really honest about it and call it and say, hey, look, 
I, I thought it was a coyote. I shot it. Here's the evidence. Here's the thing. They, you know, small civil fine. Yeah. So it, it's, it ranges all that level. Um, but we'll see how it goes on that stuff. Law enforcement is pretty, you know how they say uh, you have a case, any case, they don't like to talk about it too much until it's long past. Yeah, I got you. I got yeah. you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER. To choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality 
craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. So do you think, um, like, you know, if you guys look at this as, like, sociologists, do you think that uh, there's a way in, in the future that it might be a conversation where someone's saying, hey, do you remember when everyone was all pissed off about these wolves now? Ha, huh, that was stupid because, look, they're here and everybody's so happy now. How's that working out in Montana for? <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't happened there. But the blood's still drying in Montana, man. I, 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 don't, I think people will normalize it eventually, but um, it, it's a long ways down the road, and it's different from areas where they came down naturally and areas where you do a reintroduction because yeah. it's the government... It's kind of the government going against your values. So back when we were shooting all the wolves, I think there's probably people who were going, I don't agree with that. This is wrong or whatever. Oh, they're absolutely. Yeah, uh, Aldo Leopold and various other things. And so the government's doing a program that's not favoring your personal beliefs. And so it's no different with reintroduction in this case. There's people who are out there, ranchers, hunters, there's people who this doesn't match with what their core beliefs are in terms of things, and it impacts them. So, but, yeah, but I think that, like, nationally, um, nationally, the reintroductions have uh, pretty enormous support. Sure. Particularly among people who aren't affected by it. <laughs> well, you know, I think I've, I've observed, like, in the areas where we've had the recovery effort going on for quite a while, there's more of acceptance there. People are understanding that, okay, this is something we're going to have to live with, uh -huh. so let's just start working together a little bit better. The challenge also comes where we, we start looking at new areas to expand, because then we start that whole process over of people getting used to wolves in new areas, and then that gets tough again. So you, you have to build those relationships again in a whole new area and start building trust, but it, it, it turns, takes time. Do you personally um, do you have to per do you personally go in and deal with people who are having a problem with wolves? Well, yeah, that's one of the things the program does. Is uh, as the Forest Service representative, I uh, do a lot of communication with the permittees to try try to help resolve the issues. But people have grazing permits. Yeah, grazing permits. But yeah. um, the biologist on the ground from the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Arizona Game of Fish do also quite a bit of contact with the permittees. And actually do the work with the wolves to minimize those impacts. And uh, they, they do a pretty good job at trying to resolve those issues. What, what's the process like when, when a guy gets a, he's got a cow gets killed? Um, what's his process like? Like, what's he got to do? So he, he calls, us, uh, calls us up, either us or Wildlife Services, which is another agency yep. uh, under the Department of Agriculture as well. Um, and they get an investigation on it. So you skin it out. And so what you're looking for underneath the hide is bruising. So when a wolf bites, it bruises underneath the hide. So it's like subcutaneous hemorrhaging. Yeah. So it's the same as you or I. And then you're looking for attacks in the hindquarters and the armpit areas. So that's kind of prototypical of wolves, wolf tracks in the area. And then it gets confirmed, and they send that in, and... Uh, get compensation. So they send in the, co the confirmation from Wildlife Services and then they send that in. 
But um, and then and then, it's, then their compensation is some kind of fair market value for the animal. Yeah, it's set by right now. We have a Mexican Wolf Livestock Council that's working on on that, and it's composed of ranchers and a few uh, conservationists. And so, yeah, they do. They base it on the market value at the time, an average for the area. They also do a pay for presence thing, which is. Um, when you're out in these big allotments, ranchers can't possibly find all the dead cows that happen from anything. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's what I was going to bring up. Is That's the thing you hear is they don't know. They round them up, and they got less than they had, and they can't go and find skeletal remains and make a claim on it. Right, right. So that's that's a hard thing. So there is actually financial impacts to ranchers, real financial impacts. And so... Um, so there's this pay for presence a thing which you, is based on a formula based on wolves being there and how many cows you have, and so that that's also part of the Mexican wolf livestock payouts. And then they're defending that, that you're compensating someone without them needing to go and prove specific cases where they lost animals. Right, right. So they, yeah, it's just based on wolves and pups how many pups are raised with the wolves, so things that are good for recovery, and then how many livestock they have in an area, and then whether or not they implemented uh, proactive things. So that's stuff like proactive is like range riders being out there, extra range riders looking for uh, deads or moving cows away from wolves or uh, different things that you can implement out there on the ground to try to avoid predation as well. And those things aren't of... They aren't the golden. They aren't the silver bullet, right? So, there's still depredations that can occur despite those things happening out there, and some of them aren't found. So. How many individual animal payments get paid out in a typical year? Uh, it's pretty consistent. That, you know, the number that are depredated get paid out most years. So, I, I not most people put in for the twenty to fifty animals that are killed in terms of the livestock loss. Yeah. And then there's some component that are missing and you never find. And are there cases where, um, I'm sure, I don't mean like isolated, but is it a common problem where you're not able to come to consensus that the, the livestock owner and the investigator aren't able to get on the same page about the cause of death? Yeah, some of that happens with the investigator, but the investigators trained been through a lot of different ones and and so that's why they're professionals on what they do and so that's what we go with is what the investigator does and and makes the call in the end so mm -hmm. um so that's kind of the way it goes out there there was one permittee a long time ago who decided that he didn't want to have wildlife services out there who works on them with you know, coyote control, all this kind of stuff works with the ranchers and decided instead to have the Fish and Wildlife Service out there doing its investigations. And what I would tell them all the time is like, look, this is, this would be the same exact call. Wildlife Services would make the same call that I'm making here. Wildlife Services would make the same call. There's no differences. So over and over and eventually he went back to, to Wildlife Services doing it. And so I, the, the, Evidence is evidence. Do you do? Do you make? Do you go on a lot of those calls? Uh, I do on some, yeah. but and and I've been out there trapping for, uh, with for removals with depredations and stuff like that with uh, wolves that are out there. And so, yeah, when there's 
big problems, then I get hauled out of my office occasionally. Yeah. So, uh, I get I get to go out in the field when it's not fun. <laughs> like when there's conflict. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't get the sense that you having a, that you're like losing a ton of sleep at night about this whole thing. Oh, it's it's funny. I, I've had people come up to me and say, "You're such a y- nice young man, John. Why did you choose to do this? <laughs> Why aren't you doing something productive with your life?" And so you know, and and how can you sleep at night? And I think what I try to do out there is relate with people. So I relate with the livestock producers out there fairly well. I have a lot of common out common values, uh, land being out, open land that they provide out there. The the waters that are out there and maintained by them that's good for hunting and and fishing. So all those common values are there. Not choosing a lifestyle where you don't make a lot of money, but you enjoy being outside. So there's a lot of commonalities that are all over the place. Gotcha. And so you try to establish those commonalities with I mean, folks. those guys aren't like, I know how I'll get rich. Right. Running cattle in the desert. <laughs> right. There's no, yeah. it's not. They do it because it's their family thing and they yeah. love it. And they love the land that they're on. So that's, that's why they're, they're in the business, most of them. Yeah. And so you find common ground on that. Sure. And so the point is, it's like if someone else is here who doesn't have those same values or those same kind of working together goals, then it doesn't work out as well. So I think both can be there. Livestock can be on the landscape and in multiple use. Hunters, I'll still hunt. Wolves aren't going to drive me out of hunting. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and wolves as well. There's, there's enough room for all of it to be there out on the landscape. Would, would, I guess probably not. But let's say, let's say all of a sudden, whatever happened, delisting occurred. Um, You'd probably never be like, hey, I'm going to go on a wolf hunt. I I probably wouldn't. I haven't hunted bears. you've already been tangling up with wolves. Yeah, you've already caught a whole bunch of them. <laughs> I haven't hunted bears or lions either, and that's just a yeah. personal – nothing wrong with it. I have zero zero problems with any hunting. But for, when you map out your year, you're like thinking about elk. Elk, deer, yeah. you know, just those kind of – just what I like to hunt. Turkeys. Yeah. I, I really like calling things too. I like that interaction, getting in close with things. Yeah. So, wolves too, howling up bulls. Like, if you go out and you're looking for a pack of wolves, like early on, I remember looking for a pack of wolves in Montana, and I got the tip from this farrier, guy shoeing another guy's horses. He says, if you want to find wolves, you should go over here. So, I go over there, and I'm driving along and doing just howling at night. And then they all do. Do you howl just straight out? Yeah, yeah. Can you let one rip right now? Oh, you don't want to. Yeah, I do. As long as you do it right after me. Ooh. (laughs) 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 No, I bet you got a good one. Yeah, you can. So. Nice. But you need the moon up in the sky, and you need to tip your head back, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll do it right there, huh? Yeah, something like a little bit that? What's that call saying? I don't know. They you got into that? They haven't told me anything. Dude, my, I got a buddy that he thinks, like, I got a buddy that when he's doing wolf calling, he's, it's like he's like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm saying this, and he's saying that. He's at, I'm answering him back this question. Do you think he's right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. 
Uh, yeah, so you never, don't have like you're not like oh, I'm gonna throw the old roundup call at him. Well, no, I don't have the old <laughs> challenge call or anything. I just, I just try really? like hell to get them to respond, and I'm thankful when they do. <laughs> so you haven't found like you're not you haven't found that there's different. Well, I'm doing a break howl. So when a, you hear my voice okay, break from okay. high yeah. to low, that's a kind of a break howl. That's like a so would that be called like a locator call? I don't, they're all locator <laughs> calls. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I mean, wolves are always looking for other wolves, so they're always, I, I, it's just a just a howl. You can do a flat howl, and you just, you don't really do that break kind of in your, yeah. if you can avoid it. I can't. But you don't this. feel that that sends a different message? I don't know. They just, they just, they respond. Wolves, if you get them at the right time of year, pups love to, talk so if you get them in about august september time frame the pups will all start yakking and the adults will break in and you get all the wolves howling out there but anyways just howling along in a new area and you get that response and you say ah oh, god i just found a pack of wolves that's uncollared unmarked um that's pretty cool yeah you like the uncollared ones better. You like the wild ones. Oh, yeah. That's, that's neat. Because if it's a collared group, you go, beep, beep, beep. Oh, there it is. And now I'm going to howl. And sometimes they respond and sometimes they don't. And I'm pissed off when they don't. And I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of like, well, I did what I should have got done if they do. Yeah. So. Yeah, man, I like the real wild ones. Alaska? Yeah, just, I mean, not that I'm down on the other ones, but. Once something, um, and it's important work, but, but once something gets caught, something in it changes, man. Hmm. You know? But I was pointing that out one day, and I was like, but then, like, it's sweet when you catch, when you shoot a bird that's got a band on it. <laughs> right? So it's, it's like, very inconsistent. <laughs> uh, uh, I, they're all interesting. I mean, catching them is interesting. You walk up to them, handle them with nothing but a wife stick. You know, so you just kind of why stick them down and then you hand inject the drugs. You, I wouldn't do that with a lion, dart a lion, dart yeah. a bear, uh, grizzly bears back in the day when I was handling them. Yeah, you ain't going to why stick one of those things. <laughs> right, you had to make sure you're out of the the path of the snare where it's destroyed around the tree. Yeah. And so, I mean, wolves are, but some of them are aggressive. Some of them will bark and howl and growl at you. Until you get them pinned down, mainly the alphas. Yeah. So, but it's it's tricking a getting them trapped is hard. So every time I trap them, I handle them with a lot of respect, and then because uh, it's I it's my responsibility at that stage, and I'm happy with myself because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be out killing them on accident. No, I, so wildlife work in general, you have some mortality that occurs with handling animals that's a reality so you don't you want to minimize that to an absolute smallest amount possible yeah so we take training every year with vets that go through stuff and try to minimize that to the greatest degree possible so i can only think of a few instances where we've killed wolves out there yeah i'm sure it's and to some degree inevitable once you handle a certain number of them. Yeah, you get enough, you you have it. And so um, bighorn sheep captures, some will die from that. And so all the captures, uh, that's a part of it. So you have to evaluate whether 
your goals of your project and whether your goals of handling that animal is worth taking that risk. And so that's, that's always what you do out there with, with these kind of projects. It's not just cool. You don't just go catch one just to see, just to have some fun catching them. Right, right. Yeah. There's a purpose behind everything. So. Yeah. All right, Giannis. That was great. That was fantastic. Oh, I did find the number of elk New Mexico hunters killed last year. Fourteen and a half thousand. And and wolves are and I know it's different because they're in New Mexico and Arizona and all that, but wolves kill how many in the in the chunk of land they got right now? I think we put the estimate around sixteen twelve to sixteen hundred. Yeah. So and, basically in order And what percent of New Mexico is the wolf recovery area? Uh percent of the elk area. I don't know. There's a lot of elk up north um, in New Mexico, so maybe 40% of the elk population probably is in wolf country. So you fellers that hunt elk, yeah, you are, right? What's that? There's some elk that get wound. It's true. It is a trade-off. Right. You're dealing with, yeah, you're dealing with, some elk that would wind up in your freezer will wind up in the belly of a wolf. Right. It's competition, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, do we have the right to dust off species off the face of the earth forever? Right. That's a theological. It's like... It's a spiritual, almost theological question. Do you get to say, nope, that one doesn't get to live anymore. It will be gone for eternity because it inconveniences me. Um, and, and I don't know, when you're out there hunting, you're in grizzly bear country or you hear wolves howling or any of that stuff, to me, it's just, it makes it a little more interesting. Yeah, but I, everybody. Yeah, every, that's the thing, that's one of the g- weird things about it is people. Um, when talking about wolves, people naturally are like it gets their hackles up because of they don't want to see their deer and elk resources diminished, and they're hard on moose in the north too. Yeah, seriously true. hard. So, um, you don't want to see it diminished, but then there's you're almost not a human. If there's some part of you that doesn't get a little tickled when you hear one of those things rip out a howl. Sure. And some people, I mean, ranchers, like they're out there on there a lot. A howl means I could possibly have an impact on my wallet. Yeah. Right tonight. And some of the ranchers go, you know, at first I hated that sound. But then I was like, man, that's amazing. That's a neat sound to hear. So I got to give them. I got to give them that much, <laughs> you know? And so I think, yeah, I think the real key, and this is easy to say and very hard to do, but I think like, like kind of the, the, the key from, from my conversations and my exposure to a wide variety of people across a wide variety of landscapes is that um, a, a lot of people who are upset about projects like this, they're kind of, what they're afraid of is being told half the story. Or to have the story change later. And I think that if there was, um, not that there's a lack of transparency, but there's a, it's difficult to project how these projects are going to go and then what the legal processes are going to be like down the road. And it leaves people feeling burned 
when someone told them recovery will look like this, but then it doesn't. And then it doesn't. And you're like waiting for some kind of relief from maybe some of the sacrifices you're making. And the relief doesn't come and it leaves people with a real bad taste in their mouth. And what I hate to see is anyone who's old enough to remember like the spotted owl situation in the Pacific Northwest where an animal loses its like essence and just becomes a symbol for conflict. You know, it's like, Someday people will be able to hear spotted owl again and visualize a bird. But for many people, when you hear spotted owl, you don't visualize a bird. You visualize logging, distrust and conflict and yeah, right. And it's and I hate it when uh, and I hate to see like other animals that I love a lot. I hate to see them become symbols for um uh symbols for something besides just their their essence as a wild animal but wolves have been symbol for something besides their essence of a wild Dude. animal for a long time yeah you know what it's right? very hard to find the animal <laughs> it's very hard for people to find the animal within the animal yeah so they are just giant walking metaphors <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's been forever right europeans coming over here the whole thing yeah. No, you're right. They are. The owl did enjoy owlness, but the wolf, it's been a long time since the wolf was able to enjoy his wolfness. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the cavemen were thinking, but it may go back that far. I right? bet you they felt something <laughs> when they heard that, when they heard that howl ripping. Yeah, sitting by the fire. They weren't. Pa- I bet they weren't passive about it. That's why fire was invented. <laughs> right? You need some comfort. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys talking about this, man. It's like, um, you know, I feel vested in it, and I also just—it's just fascinating, right? Uh. And it's like, what a luxury that we're that that uh, what a luxury that as a nation we're in a position where we could be talking about whether or not how many wolves we want, right? There's a lot of nations trying to figure out if they're going to be a nation tomorrow, you know, <laughs> and like, it's like a real—it's uh, a luxurious problem, man, to be like, how much wildlife do we want? First world problem. Yeah, first well, world problem. And and when you look at it in Mexico, they're reintroducing them. And so they have problems with, they can't access particular areas because of drugs. Yeah. Right? They have people that are hungry. The wolves are competing with subsistent food, right, for people. So this is, it, it's a bigger issue. The fact that they're trying to recover wolves down there too is is a fascinating thing. Yeah. More social issues that are Far more important. I'm going to brush up on my Spanish and go talk to those boys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all private land down there, right? So it's entirely private. You have some national designations on top of private land. Yeah. So ranchers, where they're doing the reintroduction, they have to get ranches to agree to reintroduce wolves on their ranch. Those ranches, me and uh, Yanni have been fortunate to spend some time chasing around down there. And uh, those ranches are like wilderness area equivalents sure there's you'd be talking to ranch he's like well i haven't been over there in three years <laughs> you know i mean just like you spend days up hunting and maybe now and then you glass up some dude riding a mule you know off in the distance but it's some wild country man it's some real wild country carl you got anything i've got a theme and it's the theme of one-way streets all right 
things that are hard to take back. So the notion that, for example, preventing an extinction uh, versus trying in the aftermath to respond to an extinction, yeah. we've talked about a bit. Um, the notion that this particular species and others have been so close to the brink, and your point about the uh, the small percentage of species that have been listed and then delisted is delisted was, because of recovery. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, your point is well taken, but this species, the grizzlies, another example, are in far better straits now than they were when they popped onto that list. And I think it's important to remember this this piece of legislation's only about 44 years old. Um, and if you contemplate the amount of time it takes for a species to evolve and the amount of successful work from a conservation perspective that's been achieved during that short period of time, there's a lot to feel really good about. But some other one-way streets that are relevant here, one is the, the loss of a way of life and the changing approach uh, in rural communities to interacting with the land and the challenges that some of these communities face just in terms of keeping these traditional uses on the landscape. And I love the way John talks about the, the approach he takes to interacting with those folks. And I know Vicente's got a phenomenal skill set as well in terms of relating to these people. And it's not a phony thing. I mean, these guys understand the value of... You mean relating to people who are losing cattle to wolves? Relating to people who are, who are on, you know, having their that li- side their of the Their lifestyle or occupation. Yes. Yeah. And, and I know both of these gentlemen and I very much value the fact that there are people out there contributing to the retention of undeveloped land. And that's the last one-way street that I'll leave you with is this notion that uh, once you lose open, be it public or private land, to development. That's another one-way street that is rarely undone. Yeah. So I see... No, that's a very good point to bring up. I see these, these concepts being in the same vein. The notion that once something is committed, be it development, be it the loss of a species, be it the urbanization of a culture, it's a heck of a lot harder to bring that back than it is to preserve it. Yeah. Point taken. It's good. It's better to yell at your kids when they're little than bail them out of jail when they get older. (laughs) 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 All right. Giannis, you you didn't have anything? Oh, I got to... Do you you have any final thoughts? I don't. Just thank you for bringing up this topic and allowing it to be discussed. Appreciate it. I got a final thought. Um, A correction. We were talking some time ago about um, Custer, Custer's last stand. And a lot of military guys wrote in that we were using Brigadier General the wrong way. Custer, uh, a Brigadier General has nothing to do with what we were talking about. I was talking about when, during the Civil War, when they had a lot of attrition of officers, they were promoting other officers into, into generalships or into the general position on a temporary basis to make up for how quickly they were losing officers. That term, it's not brigadier, it's a breveted general. Like Custer, when he was, when he was a general, Custer was a breveted general, not a brigadier general. And when he died, he was, he died as, I believe, lieutenant colonel. So a lot of dudes from the military wrote in 
um, not in a mean way, but just wrote in to be like, dude, you're way off on what a brigadier general is, a breveted general. Did they define the brigadier? Yeah, but I can't remember now what it is. It has to do with like, oh, man, hold on a minute. Just bear with me a minute. I'm just going to give it right from the, we're just going to get right into it here. Oh, you know this? Hold on, give, the, give this guy your headset, Yanni. No, 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 we're gonna, let's, let's do it, we're going to do it. <laughs> ah, you can say stuff from the background. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on, all right. So if you're not comfortable, here we go. Uh, this, this feller, Alan, is saying, uh, FYI, just a point of clarification on the subject of brig- brigadier generals. Brigadier generals are not, he's quoting me, fake <laughs> or, quote, temporary generals. <laughs> yeah, I use the term. I called Custer a fake general. Um, they are, in fact, full generals. But the brigadier is a reference to the type of unit they have traditionally commanded brigades. I think the correct term you're looking for is brevet. Breveted generals were officers of a lower rank who are temporarily or honorarily given the rank of general. Brevets usually occurred during times of war. In this case, Brigadier General Brevet Custer was a regular army lieutenant colonel who was temporarily promoted to Brigadier General during the Civil War and later again to Major General. He was actually a lieutenant colonel at the time of his death. So my apologies to uh, all you fine folks of service who who uh, who, who took offense to me talking about fake generals. Um, <laughs> other than that, that's it, right? That's it. Right. Hey, thank you, Steve. Appreciate yeah. the time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater get yourself some free shipping.